if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. We'll be reading the entire chapter, and please stand as we turn there. The, the uh, verses should also appear on your screen, but let us stand as we read God's word to us, his people. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and, then, and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. The Lord And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the, the river Euphrates, the, uh, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadomites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephraim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So there's a story about Alex Blomberg, who is a very successful radio and podcast producer. He is head of Gimlet Media. He created his own company. He is highly uh, known in, throughout the industry. He has ridden the success to the top. And it, it, but it also is also an area of great insecurity for him because he produces radio shows, but 16 years ago, he was asked to produce the wedding video of his friend, friends Lars and Kitty. He promised them he would do it. 
And he was, uh, he, he then took the video, filmed their, filmed their wedding, and then placed the tapes on a shelf for 16 years. And there, they haunted and taunted him every day that he would look at it. Every time he produced a piece, it would remind him of the one piece that he hadn't produced. For 16 years, he was haunted with his unfulfilled promise to a friend. Every time he would see the shelf, he was reminded of how he let down his friends. His friends Lars and Kitty would voice their doubts whenever they saw him, but in the end they believed that Alex would pull through. And when he did, 16 years later, it was everything they had hoped for and even more. For Alex, his integrity was restored, but it was always on the line. Because in every promise that we make, we put ourselves on the line, don't we? When we promise our kids that we're going to buy them ice cream, your integrity is on the line if you don't come home with some chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream. Your reputation, your person is on the line. See, promises link us to the people we make promises to. It creates a relationship. And if we are to understand the Bible, we are to understand how these promises are cut, are made, which are called covenants. If you were to unlock the meaning of the Bible, you have to follow it through, through these covenants that God makes. And for our time today, we will look at this covenant that God makes with Abraham and that he cuts with Abraham. But we need to understand and we need to reflect on why does it bother us to fail? Fail to live through our promises. Why does it bother us when other people fail to live up to their promises? See, God makes these promises, and they're not like little anecdotes in the, in the Bible to apply to our individual selves. And no, we need to understand the context. How does God make promises, and what does he promise, and who does he promise them to? We will notice that he doesn't just make them to particular individuals, but he, he makes it like you or I, but he makes them to individuals for the sake of the world. And so it is also for, so with Abraham, he makes a promise to the person Abraham, but it's for the sake of his posterity and all those who would believe in the future. It is for the sake of the world. It is not so that I can soothe myself when I am uh, kind of hiding alone and struggling uh, just for whatever reason. That, oh, God's word says this, therefore I no longer have to, have to be upset with myself. That isn't the way promises work. They fit in a greater context, and so it takes some work to look at the context. And the promises I am talking about are regarding his desire to save what was lost in the fall of Adam and Eve. God himself puts his integrity, his reputation on the line in what is called the ancient Near East and what is called a covenant. We talk about covenants in marriage, but we won't understand the marriage covenant deeply until we understand how God makes covenant with his people and how that he puts himself on the line to the point of death. And we start to see that here in Genesis 15. So this is the key to understanding the Bible. God makes a relationship with people to redeem the world. It is the unfolding plan of redemption, and that is how the unfolding plan is carried, is through these relationships called covenants. He makes a relationship with Adam, 
Adam fails. He makes a relationship with Noah. He makes a relationship with Abraham, Moses, Israel, David, and finally with Jesus and his posterity, who are all those who would believe in Jesus. A covenant then is a relationship, as one uh, uh, commentator and theologian puts it, is a relationship sovereignly administered and initiated and sealed in blood. It is initiated typically by what we know as a suzerain or a, okay, you're probably saying, okay, suzerain, good job, throw out that $5 word. Thanks, Vince. It is a sovereign king. It is a, a ruling king. It is a powerful king that takes under him a vassal. Yes, I know another $5 word. And it, and it brings into this vassal a, a lesser king, a not as great king. And the lesser king is then obligated to carry out the requirements of the relationship. If the vassal did it, then they would be rewarded. That's how this opens up. The uh, the faithful servant Abraham is faithful to the Lord, and God says, fear not, I am your shield. You can go into battle, things are going to be fine, and your reward will be great. And then Abram's like, uh, wait a second. You know, I got that part, that you'll be with me, cool. But there's these two other parts. I'm still childless, and I'm homeless. What's going to go on there? And so God... As the sovereign king, as the greater king, tells this lesser king, hey, if this doesn't come true, you're not on the hook. I'm on the hook. And I promise you, through these signs of our covenant, that they're going to happen. And so what we learn from this episode in Genesis is that God is true to his word. He has integrity. God puts the outcome not on Abraham's performance or his ability to work this out, but he puts it on himself. And then Abraham's faith, Abraham's faith in God and God's promises are then credited to him as righteousness. We will explain that a little further, what that means. And so our text addresses two things, a two-point sermon. Why? Because we're live streaming, and otherwise I'd be a full Presbyterian and give you three points. So you only get two points, okay? Two points. We're going to look at our doubts and God's answers. Our doubts, God's answers. And so... We see Abram is successful in battle. It says after these things. And so we see the things that Abram rescues Lot. He's blessed by Melchizedek. And then it comes into this. It says, the Lord says, fear not, Abram. I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram says, cool. But what about this? And many times a lot of us are like that. With our doubts, we start off with this existential crisis, right? Abram's at a crossroads. He's getting older. And two parts of God's promises does not seem to be coming true. He has no child. It's a big portion there. You're going to make my nation, my, my nation great. Okay. All right. Well, that's weird because I have no kids. And then the second thing, I'm going to show you the land that you're going to go to. Abraham is a, is a homeless hobo at this point. And so this existential crisis causes some doubt in him, and rightfully so. 
Rightfully so. Notice that he believes God, but the circumstances don't seem to indicate that God is going to come through. He trusts God. He goes into battle. He does things. He does faithful things. Chapter 16, we'll see that he also will do faithless things. Doubt, things that doubt God's promises will come true. But for now, let's stick in chapter 15. Abram could know, could know either, either for him, it, was, it isn't just trust God or trust in his circumstances. In the midst of it, he's trusting God in the midst of these fuzzy circumstances. It isn't binary for him. Christian faith isn't believing God when the circumstances don't seem, uh, Christian faith is believing God even when the circumstances don't seem to point the same way. You're seeing with eyes of faith, you're seeing with, in a different way. Although the circumstances don't look right, you know something is more true. But we have this existential crisis. In Christianity, we believe they can be held in tension. And so the action of faith often happens when we take steps of faith despite what our eyes are telling us. Notice Abraham believes God, but his situation isn't helping him out. He lodges this complaint. And he says, hey, I remain childless. They're, the person who's going to take over my household is a foreigner. He's barely even a uh, part of my household. He's like a servant. He's going, to be my, he's going to be my heir. What's up with that, God? And then he says, and uh, I am very homeless at this point. Where, where am I going to live? And God will come and address his doubts. But we have doubts too that spring from this existential crisis, right? A lot of us, uh, we, we believe that we are headed toward a world in which uh, sadness, brokenness will be no more. But yet everywhere we look, there is more sadness, more brokenness. Our economy's tanking. Uh, our friends are losing jobs. Some of our friends are actually getting sick with COVID-19. Our loved ones are dying alone. God, what's up? What's up? In today's world, doubt is often applauded as being authentic. You know, it, but they usually see it as this either or binary. But I'm here to say that it is not an either or binary. It is only by having faith that you can actually have true doubt and actually wrestle with true doubt. And I can understand the, the desire to have a, a kind of integrity to vocalize your doubts. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying hide your doubts. I'm not saying squash your doubts. I'm saying vocalize them a lot like Abraham did. You know, I understand this. I understand this keenly. I know exactly what it is to go, wait, why is it like this? But we must not fool ourselves into believing that we're somehow neutral, that we could somehow like, well, let me step out of my belief and then step into this kind of objective, neutral stance. We are always investigating the evidence based on some sort of circumstance or community. We always have biases. We're always living with some sort of lenses on. There are always conditions or assumptions that we have that will cause us to doubt. Look at what Abraham has as his conditions for doubt. Abraham's condition for doubt is what? Uh, God is trustworthy, but my circumstances aren't adding up. Many of us do the opposite. 
we decide this. My circumstances don't add up. Therefore, God is not trustworthy. That's the way we do it. And we think that it's the authentic thing to live out this kind of like, well, he can't possibly be true. That isn't doubt. That's suspicion. You see, there's a difference there. You know, uh, we believe in God, but the circumstances of our life have been turned upside down. Therefore, he's untrustworthy. You know, most people, though, are never really bothered by belief in God. And so somehow they just kind of dissect it. It is really easy nowadays because we're distracted by our smartphones, simple YouTube videos, or streaming Tiger King on Netflix. But if you stop to think about it for a second, we might all have to wrestle with our belief or non-belief in God at some point in this world. We have to ask questions. You see, Abraham is not naive. He seems to be very much like you and me. He believes God, but the situation doesn't work out. What's causing his doubt? What's causing his doubt? It's belief in God. That's what's causing his doubt. It's like Friedrich Biekner who says, doubt is the ants in the pants of faith. Without faith, we couldn't have doubt. For some of us uh, that, that maybe don't believe, faith... Belief in Jesus is what's bothering our doubt. You understand? That's a little backwards play on it. And so what you're doing is you're doubting your doubts at that point. You're considering what it is to have faith. See, we're all believing something about the world that causes us to have doubt or faith. Whether you are bothered by or, you know, whenever you are bothered by something or you're put into crisis because your assumptions are being challenged, that's when we need to question our doubts. And we all have assumptions. No one is objective. We're all subjects. We're always a person who is believing something, knowing something, but we're always seeing it as colored by our culture the movies we watch, the people we converse with, the community that we keep. No one is a neutral. We all have beliefs. We all have doubts. We all have faith in something. Everybody is believing some sort of unprovable truth claim at any given moment. And so we need to process our doubt. We need to process it within a community. So if you're a Christian and you're saying, I have lots of doubts, Vince, process it with your friends. Talk about it. Don't just kind of like hide without a community and discuss this. Or maybe you're a person who's kind of like investigating Christianity and you're curious about it. Go ahead, process it with your friends. Talk about it, investigate. And so I want you to understand that there is a difference between doubt and suspicion. Doubt has to have some sort of type of faith in order for it to work on. So there is a set belief already before there is doubt. Suspicion also has a belief, but suspicion is always antagonistic. It always sees things as binary. Either I'm a doubter or I'm a believer. Christianity says, why can't you be both? We remember the man in the New Testament that says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's important. And so what do you do? You need to doubt your doubts. Have you ever been bothered by your doubts or questions? Have you ever wondered what assumptions that you hold that can cause you to doubt or not believe? Think about those things. Question your doubts. Why, why is this bothering me? 
Why do I believe this without ever, you know, thinking about it? What is it that I believe that causes me to doubt this about Christianity? What is it that I believe that makes the sexual uh, uh, ethics of Christianity so unbearable? We need to doubt our doubts. And so well, how do we respond then? Notice how Abram responds. He responds through faith and it is credited to him as righteousness. And so one of the things though that we do is not responding in faith. We are opposite of Abraham. And what we do is that we either cover up or hide in shame. And so we can cover up by blasting people on Twitter, by showing how much we know apologetically. It is to hide our insecurity and our in our doubts, it is to squash them and to try and cover them up. And that's just a defense mechanism, and a lot of people understand what is going on. Or we can hide in shame. We can go to apologetics camp. We can say, uh, people say, hey, do you ever have doubts? They're like, absolutely not. Why would you ever have doubts? And we respond this way in shame. But yet deep down, what we start to tell ourselves is like, I can't believe you would ever do this. No Christian would ever feel this way. Uh, here's Abraham. Someone who's like a poster child for Christianity. Hall of faith. Going, God, what's up? You see, we could sit at home at night and shame ourselves to, to sleep at, or into more like wait, you know, restless anxiety is probably more like it with shame. Or we could actually confess them and pray our doubts to the Lord. What does Abraham do? O oh Lord God, O oh sovereign God, you're in control of this. I'm confused. Help me out. So we doubt our doubts. We need to also pray our doubts. We need to pray him to the Lord because he's the sovereign one who actually controls. And in doing so, this is faith in action because you're trusting God at his word. Like this doesn't add up, God, but please help me out. Figure this one out. It is the prayer, Lord, I believe, help my own belief. You see, this is the one who trusts God's ability over what the eyes can see. Faith sees what the eyes cannot. And so it trusts in the character of the promise giver. Three times in the New Testament, it quotes verse 6, Abram believed God and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. And so it was not his trust in his ability to understand or his ability to give an apologetic answer, but it was trusting in the hands of the one whom gave the promise. It was going to be the work of the Lord that he was going to work it out. And so that is how Abraham trusted. And it talks about righteousness. Righteousness here is to be judged to have right standing in relationship with God according to a just way of living, that he was living the right way. And so faith that gave, that gave it to him is what, is, is what delivered it to him. Faith delivered the righteousness to him. And it was by believing in the one who could deliver and give it. It was not sinlessness of Abraham. We would see in chapter 16 where Abraham would go. It was not through his effort. It was trusting in God's word. And so for us, it is trusting in God's word, not our effort that saves us. It is trusting in the word of God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
that he is the incarnate word of God, the agent of God to deliver righteousness for his people and make his promises go from just words into embodied action. It was credited to him. It was put into his account. It was deposited. It was imputed to him as righteousness. Notice that he goes to God. It is, help my unbelief. Sometimes we confuse faith, and especially you young people, especially little kids, you're like, what is faith? That makes no sense. You know, is it just belief? Is it the ability to answer the questions right on the test? Is it mental assent saying, yes, Lord? Yes, it's a little bit of that, but it's kind of like the, young, the way a young child will rest in the arms of a parent and bearing the full weight on a parent. So we bear our full weight on the person of God. Charles Blondine was a tightrope walker who in 1859 set a tightrope above Niagara Falls, some 250 feet above Niagara Falls. And there was a great crowd that joined him there. And Charles Blondine said, do you believe I can walk across this? And in trust and faith, the people said, we believe, we believe. Charles Blondine went from one side to the other. He then did it on stilts, did it on a bicycle, and then he did it with a wheelbarrow, and he went back and forth. Each time he asked the crowd, do you believe? And they said, yes, we believe. Then one time he went across with some bricks in a wheelbarrow. And then he dumped them out. And he said to the crowd, do you believe that I could walk across this tightrope with someone in the wheelbarrow? And they shouted, we believe, we believe. And then he asked, who wants to get in? You see, faith is getting in the wheelbarrow. But doubts can happen while you're in that wheelbarrow. As the spray of Niagara Falls came up and winds blew, I'm sure a person in the wheelbarrow would sweat. But what does his ability or strength of trust or strength of belief delivers to him while he's in the wheelbarrow? Absolutely nothing. It depends only on the object and who you have faith to get you to the opposite side. And so therefore, the promises of God are not dependent on the strength of your faith. Oh no. The promises of God are dependent on God alone. And then God answers Abraham by saying, it depends on me. That's what he says. He says that is his promises. And so how does he do it? And so let's look at how God answers Abraham. God answers. He doesn't give him apologetic answers. No, he gives them himself. He gives them himself through his promises to make a covenant with him. So let's look at the text. And so God says, I need to turn to the right page. God says this. This man shall not be your, your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. God makes that promise. And then he says, look toward heaven. Number the stars. If you are able to number them. He said, so your offspring shall be. And so this first promise, he says, you see those stars? Do you see them? I see them. 
And every time I see those stars, and every time you see those stars, you need to remember that it is not dependent not dependent on your ability to see them or ability to make them happen. It depends on God seeing those stars. And every time he would be reminded in the same way that Alex, every time he saw the tapes, was reminded of him of the promise that he made to make it happen for 16 years. So every time God would see the stars, he would be reminded that he made a promise to Abraham that he was going to come true on this. See, he gives himself as the guarantor of the promise. If you default on your loan, a guarantor is the one who's on the hook should it not happen, should you not pay your portion. In the second case, regarding the land, the only person that obligates himself again is God himself. He takes, he has Abraham take uh, what everybody in the audience would know because they've read Leviticus probably by this time, what the sacrifices of God were. Uh, he takes uh, a, an, an ox and he takes it and he splits it in two. And then he takes a uh, ram and he takes a, a, a female sheep and he splits them in two. Everybody knows what's happening. This is sacrifice. They're like, we get this. We know exactly what happens. But what would normally happen in this making of a covenant is that this lesser, the lesser king would walk through the sacrifices first, followed by the greater king who observes and watches saying, hey, if you do not live up to this promise, you will be made like these animals. You'll be made like these animals. But notice what happens. Dread and darkness fall upon Abram. He chases away these birds of prey, says get away, which is a symbol of these countries that will threaten the promise that God is making. And God does what? God does not allow Abram to walk through, but only God walks through. Only God walks through the covenant, basically saying, if my promise does not come true to you, Abraham, I am going to be made like these sacrifices. You see, what does God do? He does not give us answers. He does not give us an apologetic. He does not give us a formula. No, he gives us himself. You see, on this side too, we also have doubts. But God gives signs to his people. Signs of his promise and his relationship with us in Christ. He gives us the sign of baptism. That he will wash his people from their sins and that they are his people through this washing it is a sign that he has made a promise that this is going to happen otherwise the waters of judgment will come on himself he gives a sign to his people in the lord's supper in the broken bread and poured out wine that the promises depend not on you or your effort or your moral living but rather it depends on his broken body and poured out blood it depends on that not on how strong your faith is or how sincere you are you see through his broken body and poured out blood we know that we, will, we have the ability to feast with God. And in the resurrection, we know that Jesus will feast with us. That the Lord's Supper is a deposit. And every time the Lord sees the water being applied, he remembers his promise. 
And every time the Lord sees the body broken, the bread broken, and the wine poured out, he remembers his promise of what he's going to do, not our ability. We remember in the book of Job, Job cries out, why? Why is this all, all this happening to me? And God shows up in this whirlwind and does he give him a three-point you know, Presbyterian sermon on why this is happening? No. God shows up and gives him himself. That's it. And so God doesn't give us the cleanest answers. God doesn't give us platitudes. He doesn't give us trite apologetic answer. He doesn't give us our best life now. He doesn't give us a stimulus check. Oh no, he gives us his son crushed, bleeding, torn apart on the cross like the animals who the sacrifices symbolized. He says, you see this threat? My promises will come true all the way down to the fact that I will give my son to be torn apart on your behalf. No, he gives us himself in Jesus Christ. In Colossians 2, we read that Jesus was the flesh cut off. Because on the cross, the darkness and dread and the judgment of God came not on animals, but came on the true sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one consumed by the fires of judgment because we failed on our part of the covenant. He was torn apart, but yet he was raised. He was raised so we can have a confident and quiet faith. Even in the time of these crazy circumstances, and so we could doubt and have faith at the same time, we don't know what is going to happen tomorrow. In the movie Life is Beautiful, it depicts the story of a man named Guido and his son, uh, Giose, and the, and, the, and the wife, Dora. And it talks about how Guido wants to protect his son from the horrors of World War II and, and protect his innocence and his imagination. And so he plays this little story of him promising that things are going to be okay at the end. He is going to make it okay. And so through the entire thing, he plays with his imagination and that everything is really just a game. And near the end, the Allied troops are coming to liberate the concentration camp that Guido has been put in because he's Jewish. Dora's in another side of the camp, but Guido and his son, there they are, facing the horrors of war. A German soldier is coming to get him. Guido tells his son to hide in a box till morning. Hide in a box and you'll win. You'll win the game we've been playing. So Guido hides his son in the box. Guido then is taken by the German soldier. And as they're walking away, Giuse looks out and Guido winks at him. Giuse hides. You see, Giuse doesn't really know what's going on. But his father, Guido, knows what's going on. And to protect him and to make his promises come true. Guido takes it on himself and is executed by this German soldier. So that Giuse can have the promise of the good ending of the story. The happily ever after. To be united with his mom again. 
to preserve him and save him. You see, the truth is, in Christianity, we have the ultimate hope. We know how the story ends. And it is based not on our effort or our ability to trust and believe. It is not based on our moral capacity. It is not based on having a great family life. It is not based on our ability to achieve with our own hands, but it is placed in the one in whom ha- whose hands can bring about the promises he made. That is God himself. And so whether all the circumstances of the world is that it's actually falling apart, we trust in the one who made the promise. Abraham trusted God, faith in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And we see God coming through, even at great cost to himself. And so, by faith, you are, you are credited as righteous. It is by grace you have been saved. And that grace is free, but it is not cheap. And so Abraham knew that. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Let us pray. Mighty and gracious God, you have saved us not because of our works, but you save us even despite of ourselves. So Lord, by your mercy and grace, help us to walk in faith, even though all the circumstances of our life may be scary. Lord, we believe, help our unbelief. Lord, help us to know that the real judgment came down on you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name, amen.